Most of us recognize that the nature of work has changed in the last generation. But can you quantify how or list which things have changed? On this episode, Gallup's chief data scientist on what their research is now showing as the six key changes to the nature of work. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 409. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Certainly, you've noticed that the world of work has changed in the last generation. A lot is different than when our parents and grandparents were in the workforce, and it, of course, is still changing. And while we all know that, and we have a lot of our own experiences that we can point to, something that is often very helpful to do is actually to look at the big picture and look at some of the data and the science behind this so that we can really show up in our own workplaces well-informed of what we can do to take action that's going to make the biggest difference. Who else would we look to for data than probably the leading organization in the world on researching the workplace, and that is Gallup. I'm so glad to be able to welcome today Jim Harder, who is the chief scientist for Workplace at Gallup. He has led more than 1,000 studies of workplace effectiveness, including the largest ongoing meta-analysis of human potential and business unit performance. He is the author of 12, The Elements of Great Managing and Well-Being, The Five Essential Elements. Jim has also published articles in many prominent business and academic journals, and he is the co-author with Jim Clifton of the new book, It's the Manager, Gallup Finds That the Quality of Managers and Team Leaders is the Single Biggest Factor in Your Organization's Long-Term Success. Jim, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Great to be with you, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's start right there with the title, right? Because there's a lot to be said right there. It's yeah. it's all about the manager, isn't it? Well, we've found in our research that managers explain up to 70%, and that's probably even a conservative figure from everything I've looked at, 70% of the variance in team engagement. So managers are a big factor in getting anything done in organizations, not only in communicating and interpreting what leadership wants it's done, but also in you know translating that and and inspiring teams to take action and inspiring them to connect with one another. So how teams cooperate with one another is a really big factor in organizations and their ability to be agile nowadays. One of the things that is mentioned in this new book is that while the science of management has advanced significantly in the past three decades, the practice of management hasn't. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that and what the research is showing. Yeah. So if you look at all of our Gallup historical research, and then you also take a close look at what's in the academic research that's out there published in the top journals, we know a lot about what it takes to create change in workplaces and really what matters and what organizations should do. But the problem is taking it to the next step and applying it effectively, applying principles of human nature and maximizing human capital, human potential in the workplace is just not happening at the level that it should. To give you an example, about 34% of workers in the U.S. 
uh, randomly sampled are engaged at work. Globally, that's about 15%. Mm. And only, only about 30% of managers can strongly agree that someone at work encourages their development, even though we're, we're spending billions of dollars on manager training. So we've, we've got to kind of take the next step and really figure out how managers have the right kind of experience and develop effectively in the workplace to, to really uh, to, to match what's happening in the global workplace and the, the demands of the newer workforce. As you point out, it's not necessarily a lack of knowledge on what to do. There's so much good knowledge out there. It's the practice of it. Does your research highlight where the stopping points are? What is it that's keeping us from implementing the things that most organizations know they should be doing? Part of it starts with the starting place. (laughs) It starts with the assumptions we make about people when we teach them how to become better managers. And the optimum starting place we found in our research is to take a step back and really understand each person as an individual, because we all develop somewhat differently based on our strengths. And so we would argue that organizations need to first know the strengths of each person who they're trying to teach and develop over time and leverage those strengths toward the competencies that we really want to build in managing people. Now, part of that also means we need to take a step back and and define the role of manager correctly so that we're targeting uh, those strengths at the right competencies. So we all vary in terms of, of our strengths, and we all have need to develop new skills. So the, the starting place ought to be, who are we from an innate perspective? Who are each of us? And then how do we leverage that those characteristics effectively to build the right kinds of competencies? But we also need to have a, as a really important piece of the demands of, of, of managing is, is the people management component. You know, if we put that as a really high priority and moving cultures from a culture of boss to a culture of coach and make that a cultural priority in, in organizations, then I think we can, we can align all of our other practices to get there. Yeah. And there's so many fascinating things that have come out of the research here. And Gallup has highlighted six of them that are key. Before I even ask you about those six, though, the, the, the thing that is just I've been thinking about with this book since I've finished reading it a couple of days ago is something that is highlighted in the introduction. I'm just going to read it. It says, now in America and around the world, the great global dream is to have a good job. This is one of Gallup's biggest and most surprising discoveries ever. Family, children, owning a home, and peace are still important, but they are lower priority. I read that, Jim, and I was thinking, wow, that's quite a statement from the research. Tell me about that. Uh, how is it that job has emerged <laughs> that people think about as more, in some ways, more important than even things we traditionally think of that bring us happiness? I think one important component to that transition has been the advent of new technology, where work and life now are much more blended than they ever were before. And so people are extremely aware of the fact that that work and life are not separate entities anymore. And even if, if you want to think about it from an aspirational perspective, I think people now know that their work can be part of their identity and should be part of their identity. And, you know, all the models that we look at statistically, the component of a great workplace just, just rises to the top because we spend so much time at work. It's such a big part of our day. 
we, we end up summing up a lot of our days. And even as we reflect on our life, we sum up a lot of that based on what we experience at work. So why shouldn't we make work the best possible experience that it can be? And I think it's very possible. That's the good, the good news is that we've studied workplaces that have built highly engaging places. And even if we put a, put engagement at a very high bar, you know, where you have to do all the right things to get there, there are some workplaces that have done exceptional work that we can use as models to, to keep studying. And even within workplaces, there are managers in just about any organization who are doing exceptional work. So there's a lot, a lot that we can study to help organizations get um, to the place where they have a thriving workplace. It's really just a fascinating finding. And I was thinking about it in the context of us having heard a lot about, and we're going to talk more about millennials and Generation Z here in a moment, but I think traditionally a lot of us think about the next generation of workers coming in and work not being as central to their lives and happiness as maybe in our past generation has been of like having more of work-life integration and having appropriate balance. And I'm curious how that, how does that fit? Is that a is that a misperception that we have, or is there kind of a nuanced way of thinking about that in the context of your findings? Well, whereas in the past, we might have thought about, so I'm, a, I'm on the younger end of the baby boomer generation, and I can remember when you know work was, we'd work weekends and uh, nights a lot of times, and you know work, we thought of work as a big part of our life just in terms of time consumption. But now I think work is part of your identity and, and understanding that there's sort of a, ideally, there's a bit more fluidity to the transition from work to non-work because we carry it around with us now, right? On our, uh, in most jobs, we can carry around our work on our phone, at least to some extent. So I think it's just a difference in the past. There was that separation, even though we, I think a lot of us worked a lot of hours, there's still a separation. And now there's a, more of a natural I guess a lack of a separation, but also a fluidity between work and life. If we're doing it the right way, and and we've also found that the notion of work-life balance is very individual. So if if we try to just legislate, you know, to people, here, here's the hours you should work, here's the hours you shouldn't work, that's going to vary by person. And so that's why the role of managers is even more important, and why the role of managers is even more complex than it was before, because we have more remote workers, we have people working in matrix organizations now, and they they have to have techniques that allow them to connect with each person individually to know you know what's right for each person and to support them in that for some people working on a Sunday night might relieve stress for another person it might create stress so to know that and to, to, to help individuals get to a place where they are achieving substantial outcomes for themselves and for the organization and developing is really what it's about and how people get there can be somewhat different and it comes back to the importance of what you mentioned earlier of that 70% of engagement really coming back to what an individual manager does or does not do. So important for all of us as managers to be recognizing those differences in each individual. And and I think that that really dives in into some of the things that Gallup has found that is that has changed around the nature of work. And particularly, I know you looked at millennials and Generation Z uh, and just what is changing. And the research identifies six areas that have changed. And one of them, the first one, comes back to what we were mentioned just a bit ago is that people don't just work for a paycheck anymore. They want a purpose. Tell me more about that. 
Yeah. And so while the paycheck is always going to be important to everybody because we need we need the money to you know do what we want to do. If, if we manage money the right way, it gives us some autonomy and some choice, right? So people will still change jobs for a paycheck, but they'll put purpose as a primary objective. They want their work to connect to something bigger than themselves. This younger generation will even value an organization based on you know what it's contributing back to society. And so, but the, the good news is any organization can have a succinct purpose that resonates with individuals. It's a matter of first defining that purpose and then making sure that it's blended into all different aspects of the employee experience from attraction all the way through even to, to departure and everything in between, onboarding, how people are hired, all, all that. So to be very intentional about how your purpose is embedded in that entire employee experience is, is important. It's highly valued by this generation. What's different about the managers and organizations that do this well compared to the broader population of organizations? Those that do it well help each person see how their their individual work is connected back to and contributing to that broader purpose that the organization is about. So they're they're helping them see that through their work. I guess I for lack of a better word, they're intentional about connecting that individual's work to that bigger purpose. And if it doesn't connect back to that, then it may not be the right job um, or might not, might not be a necessary job even. Because ultimately, um, each person's work should connect back to something the organization is trying to get done. I had a chance to talk with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi recently and asked him about the purpose of an organization. And he said it was to improve lives. So you can think about that for, in terms of the outcome of the organization to its customers or members, but also internally within the organization, that observation fits, I think. Yeah. And it's it's so exciting. And boy, it gives me so much hope just for so many folks in our community who really do think so intentionally about leading people purposefully and wanting to engage in their career development. It's a really exciting trend. And I think it it dovetails into the second thing that you found, that people are no longer pursuing job satisfaction, they're pursuing development. What's the distinction between job satisfaction and development? Satisfaction, you might think of as like contentment. Do people come to work just because it makes them content with the rest of their life? Now, there there are some elements, some, some organizations are trying to attract workers with that can lead to contentment, like, you know, latte machines and ping pong tables and all those kinds of things. I'm not saying those are bad, but they're not going to lead to high levels of development. This workforce, when they come to work, they they expect to develop. And the unfortunate fact is that over 90% of people nowadays who change jobs, change companies. So people are not seeing their future inside of organizations. That has to change. We've got to help people see what their path can be inside the organization. The number one reason that people leave nowadays is career development. And so for whatever reason, they're, they're seeing that to develop my career, I've got to go somewhere else. I've got to switch organizations, and that's really unfortunate. So that's a, bit, that's a big opportunity uh, for organizations as well to start mapping out what a developmental path can look like all the way from attraction and then following that up uh, with onboarding and how people can see that path continuously throughout their experience. Yeah, it's really interesting that you call out in the book that the some of the things we've seen, especially in the tech space, like the free lunches and the coffee machines and all that thing, like you're mentioning, like, and I think, am I remembering right that you, you even use the word that sometimes that can be even seen as condescending from people in the research as far as like, if you're doing that instead of 
providing the opportunity for development and assuming that that is the proxy for that, that that's a big mistake. It, it really is because it, it kind of tells the person that this is what I think you want in your career, a bunch of free stuff. So that can feel kind of condescending, right? It doesn't have to be. If you have development going on and those things, then all for the better. But I, my argument would be don't lead with the free stuff. Lead with development because that's really the, the, the top priority for people in and, terms and, of the kind of work they're looking for. Yeah. And it's something any of us can do, right? Like we may not be able to have all the free perks, but we can certainly invest the time to take to in, in really individualize how we're developing people. And as you point out, like really pointing to each person's strengths, that's something every leader has the capacity to do regardless of what the organization offers. I would even argue that every individual in an organization, whether they're in a management or leadership role or not, can improve on how they develop others. And that might be an even bigger necessity as time goes on, as we continue to have more matrix type environments where, you know, everybody takes a role in that, you know, and giving people recognition when they do good work and helping them see where their strengths are used, particularly with, you know, increases in remote environments as well. People need to need to know that they matter and how they matter inside of organizations and get good feedback. If you have trust in an organization, if you start with a strengths-based approach and build some trust, you can even have those candid critical conversations and people will uh, accept it as good, you know, good feedback. You alluded to this earlier, Jim, but one of the other key pieces of the change in the nature of work is that people don't want bosses anymore. They want coaches. What is it people say they want? Well, the old style of boss is more of a command and control type environment. Now, businesses got by with command and control for a long time because, you know, and it, it led to some, a, a lot of achievements, but it didn't feel that great to the person who is being commanded and controlled. But when they say they want a coach, they want someone who gives them meaningful feedback on a regular basis. They don't want to wait until the end of the year, you know, and, and then have a summary of, of what the manager learned about them. When the manager has an observation, they want to hear it and they want it to be meaningful. Meaning if, if it's going to be meaningful, that means the manager has to know them. It can't just be some cookie cutter feedback that they give everybody. And you can't just take turns in terms of giving people recognition. You've got to actually notice something they did and give them feedback about it. And once you have some trust, you can you can have those candid conversations again where the, the person is, is learning from you over time and getting better and better at developing their skills. A lot of us have heard that we should become more coach-like, and yet that is, uh, as we mentioned earlier, it's one of those things we know, but it isn't necessarily happened in practice as much as it should. What do you see as the stopping point for managers in being able to make that shift to be a little bit more coach-like? Yeah, great question. I, I think even if there's an awareness that we need to coach more, and there are attempts made to give people more free feedback. Let's say you've been working with somebody for five years and you just start doing that more frequently, right? It's going to feel a little awkward probably to you and to them. But if you, if you take a step back and then and start with that, that starting point I referred to earlier, where you first get to know their strengths and get to know their aspirations. So you've got a, I'd call it a role and relationship orientation conversation where their strengths are aimed at some competencies or some performance objectives, and they're a part of developing those. So involvement and goal setting between the manager and the employee, then you set the stage for having these 
more frequent conversations that have meaning and have some trust that underlie them. So that role relationship orientation has to happen. You can have these check-ins and people understand why. They don't, it doesn't feel like you're just kind of doing something to do it, right? There's meaning behind every one of those conversations and, and it can build. So I think that's, that's kind of the starting point I would think of it. Strengths-based, engagement-focused, and, and it's involving in, in that role and relationship orientation to help with the individual to get their input and really just get to know them. Again, that builds trust. And it, it makes the conversations much more dynamic and meaningful. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hearing you say too, less transactional. And that's the, yeah. um, I think that's the mistake a lot of us have made traditionally is, you know, having a set in uh, the annual review is probably the best example of that. Right. And in fact, that's one of the other big changes is that people don't want annual reviews. They want ongoing conversations. My sense, Jim, in talking with our guests on the show over the last few years and some other folks have looked in this is that organizations are kind of in all different places on this. Like some are changing really quickly, some are changing a little bit and testing the waters. What are you finding in your research that uh, how organizations are answering this question around how to handle the annual review? Well, it, to some extent, the annual review has uh, become a scapegoat for everything else that's gone wrong in performance management. And the reason that the annual review doesn't work is because all the things that should have happened before the annual review didn't happen. I would actually argue from our research, it should be a semi-annual review, at least. So you're having the conversation, you know, kind of the, the slowdown conversation with somebody at least twice a year. And that gives you a chance to you know, go over all sorts of important things with the individual, their role, their team, their strategy, even their life. So what I'm seeing organizations do is some have gotten rid of the annual review because it was associated with something in the past that they didn't want to get associated with. But at some point, they still need to have that slow down conversation with somebody where they're not just going over their performance, but working with the individual to think about their future as well. And the ongoing conversations, if they happen the right way, and I would argue that's was, that's the most difficult thing to change for organizations right now. If you get that part right, then the annual review or the semi-annual review is a much more meaningful conversation for the individual. There's no surprises. They already know how they're doing because that's been discussed along the way. And it's actually a conversation the employee looks forward to as opposed mm-hmm. to dreading. Yeah. I think the traditional annual review has been dreaded. Yeah, and I think you, you make such an important point there of it's not – Maybe necessarily the review itself, but it's the what it's it just highlights what didn't happen the six months, the twelve months prior if those conversations didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I know no one has figured this out perfectly, and every we're all learning, we're all shifting on this um, to become more coach like and have more of these collaborative conversations. I'm curious from what you've seen in the organizations you all have worked with, what has been done that's that's either really innovative or that you've seen organizations do to make that shift that has really worked or something you've seen that is really promising um, that maybe something the rest of us should be thinking about too? Yeah, I think the uh, the foundation, again, is what makes it work or not. And then you can teach all kinds of tools and techniques that go with the foundation. The foundation is to start with the strengths of the person, to get some good language around that. We've got a tool called Clifton Strengths that has been used by 20 million people now. And that provides a science-based language, you know, and dimensionality that, that any, any individual can get to know who they are. They can get to know the people they work with. They can get to know their manager. Their manager can get to know them. 
And a lot of things you, it takes you a long time to observe about a person can be summed up pretty quickly. And when, when you have that as a foundation, that changes how you have those ongoing conversations with somebody and how you leverage what is innately excellent about them and pair it up with other people where somebody might be across the room from somebody in a meeting and say, well, why can't you be more like me? But you have, if you have a strengths-based language around it, they don't think that way. They think you're not like me and that's good. Or the, the, another person might be like them and that's good. People learn how to partner more effectively, I guess. So that, that's kind of a foundation. But then I, I would also argue that you've got to have some base knowledge that is built upon with smaller modules over time. So the curriculum that we teach managers is is really important, I think, uh, both in terms of the, the base human nature fundamentals that we know are, are less likely to change, and then all the tools that a coach needs to build on top of that, where they're actually practicing how they have check-ins with somebody. They're, they're practicing how they how they have quick connects with somebody or how they have a developmental conversation with somebody. And so each manager is going to do that a little bit differently depending on who they are, but that, that repetition and practice, I think, is what makes it work. And then managers can continuously get better over time. And this leads right into the fifth uh, big change in the nature of work is people don't want a manager that fixates on their weaknesses. They want a manager that fixates on their strengths. And so two questions around that. Uh, one thing, uh, on a technical point, Clifton Strengths is what used to be called StrengthsFinder. I think a lot of people may yeah. be familiar with that term. Am I correct that that's the one and the same? That's the same, yes. And it's instrument that we keep uh, refining, uh, uh, you know, somewhat over time, depending on what the research says. But yeah, that's the same tool. Perfect, perfect. And I know a lot of folks in our audience have utilized it in the past, so that'll fit in really well with existing knowledge for everyone. And then the other piece I'm curious on that is that managers making that shift from focusing on weaknesses to focusing on strengths for someone who has maybe. Ad- is using Clifton Strengths for the first time. And I'm sure you've seen this too, Jim, where you go into an organization and you see folks have really have gone through the assessment. They've been really intentional about putting up the five key talents and highlighting that in the organization organization. And yet to our earlier point, it hasn't necessarily changed behavior of managers and how those conversations, those coaching interactions happen. What do you suggest as a first step for a manager who says, Yeah, I, I, I really do want to make a shift to being more strengths like where would I start? Well, one would be to be thinking and involving your employees in this discussion about what those strengths are aimed at. You've got to have them aimed at something important to the organization. And, you know, there's a couple categories of, of, of things I would think about. One is one are behavioral competencies that you know are, are important to your organization, like critical thinking and developing others and building strong relationships with others, how people lead change, how they communicate clearly with others. So aiming them at behavioral competencies that you know your organization, you know, are important and foundational to your organization's culture, I think is one thing. Another is to aim them at and and get the individual talking about how they utilize them to perform on their team, either through their individual performance, their, their how they collaborate with others, or in terms of the value they bring to customers. So to get some discussion going, I, you know, one of the reasons that uh, Don Clifton invented the Strengths Finder, Clifton Strengths tool, is originating it even before he he developed it. The reason he had developed psychometric instruments like that one was with the end goal to improve productive conversations, to improve the efficiency of conversations that people have with one another. 
So if you can bring a science-based language to a conversation, it speeds it up. I'd call it a shortcut to development because we're just speeding up the learning process so that we can have really more dynamic conversations with one another. So that I guess the summary point from all that is that we've got to use it in conversations and, and contextualize the strengths and aim them at important outcomes that we're trying to get people to develop to with their involvement. So that's where the conversation happens. If you have an involving conversation like that, it's going to be much more dynamic because each person will pick up something that you may not have, either either an observation from a customer or how they interact with a colleague or whatever it might be. That's one of the things I've loved so much about the tool over the years and thinking about the talents is that it gives both the manager and the employee or whoever else is involved in that conversation a vocabulary and a language to have dialogue about something that's really complicated for most of us, like our, our strengths, right? And then to be able to do something with that in a way that gets there pretty fast versus spending kind of like six months or a year <laughs> trying to figure yeah. that out on your own, right? Well said. And the, the, the interesting thing about the strengths-based approach, and we have to make sure we get this right when people hear us talk about what we've learned, is that it doesn't mean that uh, you ignore weaknesses. In fact, you should be keenly aware of your weaknesses, but you fixate more so on the strengths because those are likely to lead to high performance. And some people, myself included, sometimes find their weaknesses within their strengths. So, you know, it could be how your how one of your strengths is is used in a different in a context that isn't productive. And so, to, to figure out when and where and situationally how you use your strengths effectively is a, is an important discovery process uh, continuously. Yeah, or or overused, right? Any strength yeah. overused ultimately can become a, a blind spot for us too. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. The final thing you found in the research is people say that change in the nature of work, it's not my job, it's my life. What does that mean? What it means to me is that people now see work even more so a part of their overall identity. Now, certainly there have been people over time and in, uh, in other generations that have seen work as part of their identity also. So there are probably plenty of people listening that say, well, it's always been that for me. But in, in terms of the overall populace, it's it's much more predominant now that people see the blending of, of work and life and that it's part of how they want to represent themselves. This one kind of, you could say, is associated with the first one we talked about, my purpose. Yeah. People want, want work that connects to something bigger and defines them. And so there's that plus the technology aspect of, of the blending of work and life more, more than in the past. I, I'm glad you made that distinction too of this is of looking at the populace. And of course, you're looking at broad trends out there. I, I read that statement too. And I think like, well, I've always been that way. <laughs> but yeah. That's about me, yeah. right? It's not necessarily about everyone else. And, and I feel like I have too, Dave. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get that sense. And yet it's really interesting to know that as a global population, when you look at the workforce as a whole, that more and more people are moving that way, which I think is really exciting. But it also, I think in a way, it calls us as managers and leaders to take even more responsibility to do this job well that we've all been called to do because we really are, I don't want to go too far in this, but but we're really holding a lot of people's lives in our hands and the quality of their lives and their experiences and their careers if we do this well. And if we don't, we miss a lot of opportunities, not only for the organization, but we miss a lot of opportunities to really contribute to people's happiness. You know, these six have always been important to people being productive. The difference now is the the workforce expects them to happen. They come into a workplace expecting it. And, you know, with the low unemployment rate now, they can. 
And so I, I actually think it's a good, it's a, it's a really good thing that there is that expectation now. Hopefully it will change what's normal in workplaces. That would be the goal. And if that happens, we'll see all sorts of other things change as a function of that. We are just diving in on one piece of the research in this book. There's so much there. And I know, uh, Jim, particularly, you've written this book, and Gallup has thought about this book for the top folks in organizations, folks on the executive team, especially uh, top human resource officers and organizations. Uh, if you find yourself in that category, uh, the amount of data and research in here is really impressive. And about half the book is just the, it's amazing, like how much the surveys and the appendix and data. I mean, if you're the kind of person that's really looking for the numbers to make the case for your organization, this is a really, really important read. And there's also some resources that are on the Gallup website for folks who want to dive in when you get the book, right, Jim? Yeah, there's there certainly are. Gallup.com, we've got a whole series of studies happening around different perspective areas that, that we're looking at. One of them is the manager experience. So, how, how do managers experience their jobs? We'll have a series of studies coming out on that. And, you know, even deeper dives into some of these chapters we have in this book. So this this book has 52 core chapters in it, but those are really short chapters. So they're, they're meant to, you know, if you use it right, I think you're probably going to have your team, you and your team maybe read a chapter and have a discussion about it. And there's 52. It just happened to work out that way. So you could do one every week if you wanted. And there's a code in the book that will allow, to give you a strengths code to complete strengths if you or somebody you know hasn't done that yet. And then also a link to a platform called Gallup Access that also has links to different tools that are available. Cool. So we're going to get all of that in the weekly leadership guide for this week. So those of you who receive that, there'll be access to everything there. Jim Harder is co-author of the new book, It's the Manager. Gallup finds that the quality of managers and team leaders is the single biggest factor in your organization's long-term success. Jim, thanks so much for your wisdom. Thanks for having me on, Dave. If you're ready to take the next step after hearing these findings from Gallup, three key episodes that will be great places for you to begin. One of them is episode 237, These Coaching Questions Get Results with Michael Bungay-Stanier. You heard in my conversation with Jim that one of the big findings on the changing nature of work is this move to not have bosses as much anymore, but to have coaches, at the very least, for us to become more coach-like. And there's no better place to start than the work of Michael Bungay-Stanier in his best-selling book, The Coaching Habit. If you haven't read that and you want to become more coach-like, that is absolutely the place to start. In episode 237, Michael talked in detail with us about some of the key questions and the framework. He's been a longtime multiple guest on the show and friend of the show, and he's also working on a new book too, which is coming out next year. So more on that soon. He'll be back. Uh, but start with The Coaching Habit if you haven't read it before, if you'd also like to make that shift to becoming more coach-like. In addition, Valuable to You will be episode 293, Leveraging Strengths Finder with Lisa Cummings. Now the new name, though, Clifton Strengths. Lisa Cummings is an expert at all things strengths. She is the host of the podcast Lead Through Strengths and has been for many years working with organizations all over the world to help them to leverage the talents that Gallup has taught many of us. In episode 293, she went into great detail on how do we utilize the results from Clifton Strengths in order to get to know people better, more importantly, to take that next step that Jim and I talked about today of how do you lead on to 
development, the things that people are saying more and more that they want? How do you individualize that? How do you use the right language that really uncovers their true talents? And particularly valuable is that episode. If you have done some of that before, maybe you've had people complete the assessment, you've got the strengths posted somewhere, but it hasn't necessarily resulted in any different behavior or language or leveraging those talents within the organization. If that's you, episode 293 is a great place to start. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 370, Three Steps to Great Career Conversations with my guest, Russ Laraway. You heard Jim and I talk about the importance today of really being able to understand exactly where people are, where they are going, because it's not just about job satisfaction anymore. It's about pursuing professional development and next steps in our careers. And you as a individual manager can do so much to help people to move forward in their careers. And yet a lot of us have never been taught how to do that. If you're looking for a framework, a great place to start is the three steps that Russ Laraway teaches on episode 370. He walks us through that in great detail a fabulous starting point if you want to begin to engage in those conversations as well so you can help people to really leverage their strengths not only but to help them to get to where they want to go and if you do a great job at that oh man you'll be doing some incredible work for people and for your organization i invite you to check out all those as well as go on to the coachingforleaders.com website uh, some of you have noticed our new website is up it has been redesigned more on that coming in the next few weeks and those of you who have really been paying attention have noticed i am up to something new that's uh, appearing on the website more on that in the next few weeks too but if you'd like to get an early look go over to coachingforleaders.com that's also a great place to set up your free membership if you activate your free membership, you're going to get access to all kinds of things, including my free 10-day audio course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. It also includes access to the entire library of my book notes. Every time I invite someone to appear on the show who is an author or if their organization has put out a book, I've often read that entire book as I did for Jim's book, and I have highlighted the things that I think are most important, not only for my conversation with that guest, but also important for you. You can download all of my highlights from It's a Manager on the Coaching for Leaders website on this episode. And not only that, but every book I've uh, reviewed in the last couple of years, that's part of the free membership. It'll also give you access to my weekly leadership guide, the entire database of all of the resources I've shared in those weekly guides over the years. And yeah, there's actually more than that too. Go over to coachingforleaders.com, completely free, full access available for that. And as always, if this episode was helpful to you, please pass it along to someone else who would benefit from this conversation. And a huge thank you to all of you who have done that so regularly. I so appreciate the privilege you've given me to be of influence in your work. Have a great week and see you next Monday. Take care.